almost two years ago, we began a sermon series entitled Mission Impossible, God's Plan to Save the Planet. We followed up with a second part of that series entitled Love Story in a World at War. It was the story of Jesus, Jesus' life, his birth, his miraculous deeds, his teaching, his death, burial, and resurrection. The person and life of Jesus Christ and how he touched literally thousands and thousands of lives in the three and a half years or so, three years of his earthly ministry in Palestine, which is today is known as Israel. Jesus transformed lives. Jesus was a de human demonstration of who God was. He was God in human form. In year one, we looked at the mission of Jesus, what he carried out while he was here on earth in his physical body. And then for the last 10 months, we looked at the mission of Jesus carried out by his and through his followers. We've roughly followed the narratives written by Dr. Luke, uh, the book of Luke, which was Jesus' mission, and then Acts, which is Jesus' mission continuing through his followers. The title of our series has been Unstoppable God. Well, today we're going to conclude our study in the book of Acts, the life and mission of Jesus, but it's really not the final chapter of Acts. We are living out the last chapter of Acts as we carry on the mission of Jesus Christ. I want us to join Paul in this last recorded narrative about him in the book of Acts as he's arrived in Rome. I hope that you have been reading through the book of Acts and you read about um, his shipwreck and then his rescue and then his journey to Rome. Now we find him in Rome and it's gonna be the last recorded part as we look at Unstoppable God. We're gonna look at eight steps in the progression of our mission. Eight steps in the progression of our mission. I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to Acts 28. Acts 28, uh, it's on page 910 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. We're gonna start with verse 17. Acts 28, 17. Three days later, he called together the, leader of the leaders of the Jews. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, my brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of the brothers who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their ears, their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. 
Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Today's message is really a summary of the last two years. Okay, so if you've missed all those messages and you're new, this, I'm gonna give you everything. It's only gonna take about three and a half hours. I hope you have, have time. No, just, just kidding. The, this is a summary of the last two years. The sequence of events in the New Testament and the sequence of events in each of our individual lives. We're gonna discover eight steps in the progression of our mission. Eight steps in the progression of our mission. It was the, the, these were the eight steps that Jesus set out and these are the eight steps that, that we are to move forward in. Number one, the mission given. Jesus gave his mission to his followers in two primary statements, two primary statements. The first is a command with a promise. In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, it says, Jesus came to them, the 11 disciples, and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So what is the mission? It's make disciples, make disciples now, or make followers or wholly devoted followers of Jesus. Now, we've heard this for a, a lot of years. A lot of us have heard this thing about make disciples. And if you're, if you're like me, I like some clarification. Everybody want clarification? Take out your, your notes. If you have your notes, turn it over. I gave this to you last week as well. On the back is, is a definition or a definition of making disciples. It's, called, it's a process. It's called the angle scale. I wanna just very briefly walk through this. When we're making disciples, we're talking about helping people become wholly devoted followers of Jesus Christ. But people are all over the map, okay? And when you look at where people are at, you look at the minus nine on the left-hand side, you've got minus nine through plus six. Minus nine is no awareness of a supreme being. Minus eight is awareness of a supreme being, but no effective knowledge of the gospel. Now, we may not see this very much in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, but you'll see it probably um, in larger cities, you'll see it, we, we saw it a lot in Seattle on the West Coast, that people had an awareness that there was a supreme being somehow, but they had no awareness of this, that he was a personal God. It's some kind of universal spirit or something out there, and so there's just kind of an awareness, they say, do you believe in God? Well, yeah, whatever that means. They have some kind of an awareness of a supreme being, but that's, that's it, they're, they're not church, they don't understand anything else. Um, and you may run into people like that, then there are those that have an initial awareness of the gospel. In other words, they, they may have heard somewhere, maybe it was years ago, or somebody said to them that, that um, God loved people, cared about them, and he sent Jesus to die on the cross, and, and, and the good news is we can go to heaven because of this. You know, the, the, all of the awareness of the gospel message, uh, awareness of the fundamentals of the gospel implications. In other words, not only are we to take this information about God and about how Jesus came, but, but there's, a, there's, there's a belief in it and an action to be taken where we actually submit ourselves to Jesus, ask for forgiveness and, and et cetera. So this whole process from minus nine to repentance and faith in Christ, a new creature, may take 20 years or it could take 20 minutes. 
for people to come down this. But everybody, if they, are, if they are before they've come to Jesus Christ in faith, everybody is on a journey of faith of some sort, and if they don't know Jesus Christ, they're somewhere along that continuum. And it's critical that we, if we're gonna make disciples, is, is connect with people where they are. That's one of the keys, is understanding where, where are they? I've run into people, uh, one guy was a Hindu, and I said, I said uh, do you believe in God? And he. He says, well, there are about 4,000 or 4 million of them. He was from an Indian belief. It was, you know, you go to China, all kinds of gods. You know, they didn't, he didn't understand the question. It, it didn't mean anything to him. Understanding where they are. Now, there's a process that we follow in making disciples, and that's on the right side, the disciplers' role. And first of all, it's building bridges, building some kind of relational bridge so that we earn the right to talk to people. If I don't know anybody, I can't share my innermost thoughts and my, my dreams and goals, but if I get to know them and they know I care about them, then I can actually share what's important to me, which is my faith. So pre-evangelism is, is building bridges and establishing relationships. Evangelism is learning how to, how to give a verbal witness, sharing verbally, persuade, etc., and follow up. There's a process that we go through, and it's important that we figure out where the, the people are on their journey of faith, where we are on a journey of faith, and then figure out where do we need to connect to them in order to bring them to a new creature, a new creation, and then moving them all the way down to reproduction. There's a whole process, and I wanted you to be aware that this is a process, and it's very different, and you can't cookie-cutter the process of making disciples. It's gonna be as unique as the people in your relationship circles. Making disciples discover where they are. And you can figure all this out and you can, you can ask certain questions and you can figure out where people are. So making disciples or followers. Now then in Acts, Jesus tells how that mission will be accomplished. He's a, he doesn't give relational guidelines. These are things that, that we need to work out in human form. But he says how, this is how the mission will be accomplished. In Acts 1, 4 to 5 and 8, he said, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in, in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. How are we to carry out this mission to make disciples? Be witnesses, be witnesses. And a witness testifies to what they've seen and heard. A witness tells what they have experienced. And these followers of Jesus, as we've looked through the book of Acts, had, are going to tell others about what they had heard Jesus teach, how they'd seen his life. They'd seen him crucified, dead, and buried. They had seen him rise again. And they would testify that their relationship with Jesus Christ had transformed their life. They were changed. This is their faith story. It is your faith story. How has Jesus changed your life? That's the question, that's the how. That's, we are witnesses. And their mission was to start in their own neighborhood, in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, the end of the world. And, and so we find that there, there was a mission, there's a purpose for, and there was a reason for being. That was the mission, to make disciples, to be witnesses. Now, my daughters both ran track in high school and, uh, 
and junior high. I, I, I can't tell you how many hours I spent at track meets, either watching from the stands or assisting as a timer, working in the pole vault pit, putting the bar back up, and you know, there are all kinds of things that you do if you're volunteering as a parent at track meets. And to me, one of the most exciting parts of the track meet, every track meet, were the relay races. The re how many of you ran a relay in anywhere, anytime? Okay, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The relay races. Each person in a relay race carries a baton a certain distance, whether it's four people running 100 meters each or four by 200 meters. Of the, in my opinion, the most exciting race uh, of the entire track meet is always the last one, and that's the four by 1600. Everybody runs 400 meters and then hands off the baton. It's, it's, uh, it's the last um, in every track meet. Well, when each person has covered their distance, they would pass the baton to the next runner. The most crucial part of the relay race is the baton pass. The baton pass. No matter how fast each runner runs, if they drop the baton or they fail to pass the baton properly, they will lose. Very simple. Races are won or lost with the baton pass. Critical, the baton pass. Well, Jesus ran his race while on earth, and, and he passed the baton to his followers. We read about it in the book of Acts. And many have carried this baton since. And the baton has now been passed to us, to you and to me. And we may be in the anchor leg. We may be in the final part of the race. We don't know. But the baton has been passed to us. And it's critical that we, as recipients of the baton, keep running the race, keep carrying out the mission so we can pass the baton to the next generation. It cannot end with us or the church will die. Many movements, many organizations flounder and stop going forward because they've lost their sense of mission so they have no baton to pass. They've lost their purpose. They, they, they don't know why they started to run in the first place. They turn into maintenance organizations. Energy is spent only on maintaining the people and the status quo. Many churches, in fact, whole denominations have lost their sense of mission and purpose. They were once a movement, now they're an organization. They were an organism, now they're just an organization. And there needs to be change. There has to be innovation as, as you go forward. I, I look at companies, uh, corporations like Eastman Kodak. Eastman Kodak was on the cutting edge of all kinds of stuff. It was one of the major corporations in America. And they just could not make the shift from print film to digital. I mean, this is basically Eastman Kodak. I don't even know if it exists anymore. It may exist in some kind of shadow, but it's not what it was. You look at Sears, you look at Boeing, you look at Microsoft. They have to constantly change and adapt their mission or they will die. Now the mission for the church is the same, but how we carry out that mission has got to change because the race changes. Our mission, the baton has been passed. Make disciples, holy Devoted followers of Jesus. Be witnesses in Eau Claire, Chippewa Valley, Wisconsin, the whole world. The mission has been given to them. It was given to us. So now I've got the baton. What do I do now? The next step is equipped for mission. Equipped for mission. Number two. In Acts 2, 1 through 4, it says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The Holy Spirit gives power. 
How do I use that power? What, what am I supposed to do with this, this power? Well, not long ago, I saw a television report about lightning. Lightning, now, um, in Seattle, we very rarely had lightning. If it was lightning, it was like, wow, this is an event. Then we spent a year in Wichita, Kansas, and it was like our house got struck by lightning, and lightning was, it's not quite as bad here, but we have lightning, we know lightning, okay? Lightning. This man had spent his entire life studying lightning. And on that program, they interviewed him. And he said that there's more power in one bolt of lightning than a nuclear bomb. There's more power in one bolt of lightning than a nuclear bomb. But how do we, how do we harness that power? What do we do with it? Well, some would compare the power of lightning to the power of God, the Holy Spirit power. But what can we do to harness that power? If the power is not directed, it is destructive and it's useless, just like lightning. Well, the interesting thing is, and this is still amazing to me, God has chosen to direct his power, his Holy Spirit power, through humans, people, you and me. He's chosen. That, that lightning power, that, that power of God, the Holy Spirit power that fell, you know, in the Old Testament, it wasn't for everybody, but on the day of Pentecost, it was brought down. And he channels that power through human beings. If we're going to direct that power, we've got to be equipped. We've got to figure out, what do we do with that? We have to be equipped for the mission. Now, what, what, how are we equipped? How do we know what to do with that power? Well, it's interesting. Let's look at the equipment. Okay? We don't have time to be exhaustive, but I'm going to give you some general guidelines here. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 7 and 11 says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men and women. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He gives them to each one just as He determines. Equipment. He equips every believer with spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit came down and filled the followers of Jesus, gave them the equipment. Now, how can I learn this stuff? I'm glad you asked. We had a network seminar. 25 people attended. Next January, we're going to do it again. If you're not sure, read 1 Corinthians. Do some research. But we want to help you understand what your equipment is. Because God uses your equipment, your gifts, spiritual gifts, to do his work. And it's not just in the church, the four walls. It's out there. Most of the spiritual gifts are to be operated out there, out there somewhere. That's what the, the whole idea is. Spiritual gifts. Discover your mission, your gifts, and your equipment. Next, there's training. What do we do with this? Ephesians 4, 11 to 12 says, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Apostles, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. The role of leadership is to train, equip, model, and lead. There's equipment. There's training to use that equipment. That's the job of the leadership to help people understand that. And thirdly, there's the power. The power. You can have all the equipment. You can have all the training, but no power. All of them are necessary to carry out our, our, our mission. Otherwise, it's like a car without an engine or a boat without a motor. Looks great. Looks like a great car. It just doesn't have an engine. Can't go anywhere. Well, the Holy Spirit is our power. 
And, and Jesus said to his followers, hold off and wait. Wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit is given to you. Now, when, when, when most people in the church hear about this, this mission to make disciples, they go, whoa, whoa, I, I can't do that. I, it's just, it's beyond me. Good, I, I can't either. I can't do that. The Holy Spirit does it through you. It's in you, to you, through you, to them. I'm going to say that again. It's in you, to you, through you, to them. It's saying, am I available for the Holy Spirit to do that in and through me to them? If you want to know more about this, um, you can go on our website. We have, we have all the past messages on there. Two of them that would be very appropriate if you have more questions. One is called Dangerous Christianity. Dangerous Christianity. You should be able to remember that. Okay? The other one is Powerful Precedence. Powerful Precedence. Dangerous Christianity is about Acts 2 and the Holy Spirit first came. Powerful Precedence are about the evidences and, the, and what happened when the Holy Spirit came on people at different times in the book of Acts. So if you need to re-listen to that or listen to that, give you some more perspective. I don't have time to preach that right now, as, as, we, as you can tell. Okay. The third step in the progression of our mission is growth for mission. Number three, growth for mission. Acts 2, 41 to 42 says, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There, were, there was some growth happening. Now, uh, there's a columnist named, named Herb Cain who wrote in the San Francisco Chronicle. He said this, and I quote, every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up it knows it must run faster than the fastest lion or it will be killed. Every morning, a lion wakes up. It knows it must outrun the slowest gazelle or it will starve to death. It doesn't matter whether you're a lion or a gazelle. When the sun comes up, you'd better be running. Spurgeon said, if you're not seeking the Lord, the devil is seeking you. If you're not seeking the Lord, judgment is at your heels. See, it's not enough just in the Christian life to, to just wake up. We are called to run, to grow, to become more like Christ, to press ahead. We must grow. We must run faster. How does that happen? Let's talk about spiritual growth for a minute. Yeah, it talks about some things that are happening in this passage. First of all, it's worship. They met in the temple courts. They, they met in, in, in corporate worship. There's just something about being in a crowd of people that are cheering for the Brewers or the Green Bay Packers or the Seahawks or whoever that might be. There's something about being in a crowd cheering other people on that encourages everybody. Everybody's here to, for the same purpose. And when we come together, we are here to glorify God and to sing his praises and to declare who he is. And, and when we're together, we're clapping and singing and whatever. We worship. It's, it's critical that we grow in worship. There's teaching, and I, I pray that you would grow through messages on Sunday mornings, but even more important, I believe, is you guys having personal devotions where you read and pray, personal reading and study, listening to podcasts, whatever it is, studying the Word in, in Connect Group, whatever it is, finding where the Word is, is taught and, 
and, and growing through the word and teaching. Fellowship, they, they met in homes and they ate together. There was group life, there were, was a relationship. And you know relationship always happens best around food, okay? So that happens. Um, they broke bread together, which not only was eating together in homes, but it was also celebrating communion, which is spending time together, celebrating the Lord's Supper, that Jesus, remembering what Jesus has done. And then there was prayer. Intercessory prayer, prayer for others on behalf of others. Um, I'm excited when I, when I hear how different individuals are led. To, I just had one person say every Saturday night, I pray for you, every Saturday night. And I said, wow, that's just one person. People individually, you, many of you are praying for individuals in the church, praying for needs, whatever. Individual prayer, uh, it's amazing. Uh, every connect group that meets has a significant amount of time in prayer where we're praying for needs. Nancy Olson is teaching our children how to pray. And one of, the, one of the most exciting things is to hear how they're learning how to pray. And they not only do prayer, but they do something called prayer doodling. Now, I'm not going to steal her thunder because in, in a few weeks, I'm going to have her talk about prayer doodling. And want, I want you all to learn how to prayer doodle. It's amazing. Actually, a bunch of adults were doing that as part of the prayer meeting last winter on Tuesday afternoons. Prayer doodling was part of it. But, but prayer, which makes a difference, God calls us to prayer, to prayer. That's spiritual growth through prayer. There's also numerical growth. In Acts 2, 3,000 people were added in one day. And then daily. Does God care about numbers? Absolutely. Not in the sense of mathematical calculations, but numbers represent people whom Jesus came to seek and to save. Numbers matter to God because people matter to God. Numbers matter to God because people matter to God. So our mission to be witnesses and it's to make disciples, lots, lots of them. Next in the progression of our mission, this is a little bit of a hard one. It's cleansing for mission. Cleansing. This is not a pleasant part of our mission, but it's absolutely essential if we're to move forward. One account, and you always ask, why did, why did Luke include these particular accounts in there? Because some of them are, I don't know if I'd want that story in there. I don't want that told about me or whatever. But, but we have an account in Acts 5 about a man and his wife who lied to God. There was sin in the church, and it fell to Peter to confront the issue. Cleansing includes confronting issues. Confronting issues. Letter A. And th these can be personal issues, issues in our personal life. Sin that needs to be dealt with present. Sins that we never dealt with in the past. And, and all of those kinds of issues. Now, some people would say, you know, um, we're not supposed to get involved in other people's lives. Aren't we supposed to not judge, lest we be judged? Well, let me, let me talk about that in the context of the, of the church and the body of Christ. I don't have this, there are two passages uh, I want you to write down. I'm gonna read, first, first one is 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13. And uh, this is a situation where uh, there was somebody in the church in Corinth that was, that was committing sexual, sexual immorality and, and living in sin, and nobody was doing anything about it. And so Paul writes, I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. In other words, he's saying, 
I'm, I'm not saying you're supposed to not associate with people out there that might not be living a, a, a moral lifestyle. He said, you'd have to remove yourself. This isn't asceticism. He, that's not what he's talking about. He's making a differentiation between people out there who are, are not believers, not living according to our moral codes. We can't expect them to if they're not believers. But he's talking about this. He said, but now I am writing to you that you, that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? The answer is, it isn't. We're not to judge people outside the church. Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. In other words, we're called to confront Issues. If someone is in the church, they're claiming to be a believer, and they're living in sin, we are called to confront them. Why? Because we love them. Because we love them. Outside the church, see, people say the church is just judgmental. They're talking about everything they're against. No, no. When, when we look at people out there that are, that are living in sin and unrighteousness and doing uh, ungodly things, they're doing those things because they don't know Jesus, okay? But if someone knows Jesus, we know better and if we're going to be in a church together, we must confront those issues. Now, in James 5, there's another passage, 19 through 20. It says, my brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. He's talking about the ministry of confronting sin within the church and love covering a multitude of sins and restoring them to the body of Christ. We must, in the church, care enough and love each other enough to confront. That's what God has called us to do. That's, what, that's part of the, of the mission that we have. It's the most uncomfortable part of the mission, I want you to know. It's hard, it's really hard. I was told this last week by a detractor of the church here, that I have a reputation of being strongly against gossip. Strong, that I, they said, you have a reputation, you're just really against gossip. And I said, I hope so, I hope so. I said, gossip does more damage to the church than any other sin there is. And it's usually couched in spiritual language, like a concern or prayer request. Or I, I just wanna share something with you. All we have to do is read the, the book of James and, and discover what that is. Now, personal sin, we cannot move forward individually until we've dealt with, with personal sin, being cleansed through confession, repentance, and forgiveness. But sometimes the issue may be corporate. In other words, there's a sin that the whole church needs to deal with. And maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's robbing God by withholding tithe. Maybe it's a lack of faith. Maybe it's a lack of compassion for those that don't know Jesus. Maybe it's complacency. It could be lukewarmness, tolerating sin or ignoring sin or compromise. All of those sins, if you read the book of Revelation, were part of the churches then. They had issues, and boy, he called them out on it because he said, you are, are not carrying out your mission, and your corporate sin that you're tolerating is, is keeping you from accomplishing your mission. Maybe it's unbelief. We must move forward as a church in belief. The Israelites, if you remember the story, they were given the promise to go into the promised land. And they came up, and... Basically, because of unbelief, they said, we don't believe God can give it to us. We don't believe we can beat the giants. It was a, it was a 10 to two vote 
the, the negative report against the positive report. Joshua and Caleb said we can, the other one said we can't. And because of unbelief, they ended up wandering. They experienced God's judgment and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. There are a lot of churches that are experiencing God's judgment today because they don't have belief. We must operate out of faith, not unbelief. And sometimes we need to, as a church corporately, confess our sin of unbelief and say, God, I believe that you can do incredible things. That you are God who does supernatural things today. It wasn't just for the book of Acts. We are in the book of Acts. Confronting issues. And then resolving issues. Finding resolution individually or corporately. Before we can move forward in mission as a church, we must confront issues and resolve issues. And the purpose to confront and resolve is number three, redeeming. Redeeming. All confrontation has as its motive and end goal, redemption redeeming the relationships, redeeming relationship with God and redeeming relationships with one another. As your pastor, you have my word that I will do my best as called by God to confront, resolve, and redeem. And after the book of Acts, the church in the book of Acts dealt with cleansing, the next step was strengthened for mission. How do we get stronger? Okay, number five, how do we get stronger? There's a sequence of events which make us stronger, starting with resistance. If you lift weights, how do you get stronger? You add more weights, resistance. If you play football, how do you improve? You get better opponents in you. If you're a gamer, how do you get faster, sharper, better? Play tougher opponents. That's how you do it. All throughout Acts, the followers of Jesus encountered resistance and they got stronger because of resistance. Second is opposition. The Christians in Acts experienced oppositions, opponents fighting against them. Now, most of us wouldn't say that's a good thing, but uh, opposition can be very good. There's an interesting observation made by a, a conservative college student who has been subjected to harassment and ridicule for his conservative viewpoints. If you've been in college in the last 30 years, you know that the uh, predominant viewpoint is not conservative and it's not Christian, typically, especially in state universities. They ridicule. I remember being totally, uh, being, being in, a, in a toe-to-toe battle against my philosophy professor about truth and absolute truth and just feeling like he just wanted to ridicule me and demean me. This was a long time ago when I was in college. It's worse now. And, and we know that anybody that represents Christian values or, or stands up for truth in that are going to be made fun of and, and diminished and ridiculed. And this is what this conservative, harassed student said. He said, I have been required to sharpen my thinking and arguments which help make me stronger. I've been required to sharpen my thinking and arguments which make me stronger. And then he says, very pointedly, the progressive liberals who dominate the campus have mushy, lazy reasoning since they just accept the progressive party line. Opposition makes us stronger, makes us think. If you get challenged for your faith, you're going to say, well, I better make sense of it. I better figure out why I believe what I believe. That's good. It's not bad. Finally, there's persecution, and that's harder. For the first church in Acts, this included beatings and jailing and even death. And being on a mission moving forward, challenging the status quo, running the race, carrying the baton, all in the power of the Holy Spirit, we will be persecuted going to happen. It'll, it'll come in many different forms. If you talk to everybody here, I'll bet you everybody here has been 
diminished, persecuted in some way when they've shared their faith. Maybe somebody just laughed at you. You know, it could have been anything. All the way to, you know, the full extreme of that. Persecuted. I have an uncle who just passed away a couple weeks ago. He was supposed to go to Red China as a missionary, and they closed Red China, and communism took over. And, and his parents, and he, he, had, he had been born there, and his parents and all kinds of missionaries were thrown out of there. Well, there was a church in China. There were a whole bunch of people in China. And they all of a sudden came under severe persecution. Well, there's one pastor, because he was a pastor of a church, of a Christian church, was imprisoned for 30 years. 30 years. When he, le- when he left the church, when he went into prison, his church was made up of 50 people. 50 people. 30 years later, he was released. And he made his way back to his church. Now, having been persecuted for 30 years, this church of 50 people was now made up of 15,000 Christians. That's what has happened historically under persecution. It's happened in China, and it happens everywhere. Persecution is not the death of the church. Many times, the blood of the martyrs is the life of the church. Strengthened because of opposition and persecution. Some of you are experiencing that kind of resistance and opposition, and you need to be built up in faith. Most of the time in America, we have seduction, not opposition, but it's starting to change. Strengthened for mission, then number six, scattered for mission. Scattered. Acts 8, 1, it says the church in Acts, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. All except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So what did they do? Verse four, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Historically, the church in America was started by colonists who left Europe because they were persecuted for their faith. And America was largely founded by people pursuing religious freedom. And so we have a legacy of, 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 of coming in and being scattered around the world. Also, this, people are scattered for mission around, around the globe. It's amazing. Sometimes we think that America, and, and some people believe that America exists for herself, and that we have this great nation and whatever. No, that it's great that, that we're trying to make America great again, but the issue is that God raised up this nation not to, to be unto itself, but to send people to the farthest ends of the earth in missions, in missionary effort. We exist for the other parts of the world. That's scattering for mission. You say, well, I, I'm not involved in that. Well, you are scattered all over the map during the week, just so you know. I don't know anybody that lives here. Sometimes we feel like we live here, but we don't live here either. We live in different places. We're scattered all over Chippewa Valley during the week. We're the church in dispersion six days a week. It's a brilliant strategy, spreading out and telling people about Jesus. And let me just say something. Um, one of the goals of connect groups is to become missional communities. Now, when we get together as connect groups, we pray for one another, we eat together, uh, spend time in, in prayer together in the word, we uh, develop relationships, building each other up. But the end, that's not the end goal. We, we wanna gain healthy relationships, but the end goal is to establish beachheads, missional communities that can build relationships with the community in which the group meets and where you live to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right, Damien? Yeah, absolutely. 
If you have any questions, talk to him afterwards. He'll give you this whole spiel. This missional communities, passionate about scattering so that we can establish those beachheads out there and have missional communities. Now, we have to have health and we have to have good relationship. There has to be a loving community to bring people into, but when we have that health and we're getting there here, then we must go out and, and meet them where they're at. Most people are not gonna come and find Jesus at church. I mean, it's great when people come to church. Um, I talked to a friend of ours whose son and daughter-in-law are, are missionaries in the Czech Republic. And they said that in the Czech Republic, some of the very, very old generation, it used to be under communism, the older generation used to go to church because it's largely Catholic, but the younger generation, probably 40 and younger, they don't have this tradition of going to church. And so people just don't go to church. They don't even think about church. They, they lived in godless communism for, for like 50 years. They didn't have anything like that. So their churches are all in homes. So they're meeting in homes. They're doing connect groups is what they're doing. That's their church. That's their, the place of, of transformation. And it's just interesting. It's a different culture. In our world too, if it's a non-church culture, it's a post-Christian society, people that don't go to church, they may or may not come here, but I bet they'll come to your house. So they'll... they'll talk to you while you're walking your dog or, or watching the grandkids at the playground or whatever it is. There, there are times that we can do that. We reach out and serve our communities where we live, earn the right to share. We need the power of the Holy Spirit equipping and training to make disciples and be witnesses. Let's look at unleashed for mission, number seven. By the time we get to Acts 28, everyone had heard about this sect called the way, Christianity. It's like they say all advertising is good advertising, even if they're against it. You know, everybody had heard about it. Everybody was aware. They may not have agreed with it, but they were aware. And in Acts 28, 31, it says, boldly and without hindrance, he, Paul, preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity, Christianity. By 400 AD, is about 320 years later, by 400 AD, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire under Constantine. That's both good and bad. The Church of Jesus Christ became politically powerful and financially profitable and eventually became corrupt. That happened. But ultimately, the Church of Jesus Christ, the Kingdom of God, transcended all governments, nations, and institutions, and people groups. And when it was unleashed, it changed the lives of people of every nation and culture. As we look forward to the final frontier, is number eight, ultimately we find that God has proven to be unstoppable. And in spite of the ups and downs of people and nations and institutions and countries, the kingdom of God continues to grow and thrive, proving once again that we have an unstoppable God. Let's do the video. Nothing shall be impossible. Your kingdom reigns unstoppable. We'll shout your praise forevermore. Jesus, our God, unstoppable. Nothing shall be impossible. Your kingdom reigns unstoppable. We'll shout your
What an incredible picture. You've seen it wax and wane and wax and wane, but God always makes a difference. He's unstoppable. Let's stand, shall we, as we sing Unstoppable God. Let's sing that together.